This episode is supported by Provider Solutions and Development, the holistic career coaching experts with 20 years of experience. Recruitment had to change, so they took away quotas and started listening to clinicians. Find the place you're meant to be. Reach out to psdrecruit.org forward slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders have partnered with VCU Health Continuing Education to offer free continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to create your free account and to start claiming CE credit. The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, this has been quite a special episode. Talked about wilderness medicine and just a ton of great stuff in this one. Our guest was Dr. Tom DeLore. And uh, Stuart's not here, Paul, but I think we did great. We had a wonderful guest co-host who we'll introduce in a second. Paul, but first, tell people, what is it that we do on this show? And can you remind me the meaning of life? Sure. I, uh, I'm going to answer your last question first. So I I think we go with 42 each time. (laughs) Um, And then as to what we are and what we do here, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We also have a a spectacular uh, producer with us and and returning guest, uh, Dr. Avital O'Glasser, who also uh, recruited the other fantastic guest that we have for the show, Dr. DeLaurie, who's going to talk to us all about um, what to do if DeLaurie, forgive me who's going to tell us what to do if we get bitten in the face by something mysterious or, or lose a limb falling down the mountain. Um, so, Dr. Glasser, Avital, please tell us more about our fantastic guest tonight. Yeah, so I have the privilege of actually being a colleague at, at OHSU with, with Dr. DeLore. Um Tom is a native Hoosier who graduated from Indiana University School of Medicine. He did his residency in internal medicine and fellowship in Heme Onc at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. And he is currently a professor of medicine, pathology, and pediatrics there. He has always had a strong interest in hematology and other aspects of wilderness medicine, which is clearly our focus tonight. He is a lifetime member of the Wilderness Medical Society and was on their board of directors for several years, um, as well as serving as the chair of their research committee and remains an active member. He's been awarded both research and founders awards by the Wilderness Medical Society. And across the board, Tom truly is the triple threat, uh, dedicated clinician, educator, and researcher. He is aptly named at Bloodman on Twitter. Um, and Tom teaches us, you know, I kept dubbing this the Halloween episode that wasn't um, for many ways, but we, you know, we talked about coagulation. Of course, he's a hematologist. How can we avoid that? Um, venting insulin bottles, dexamethasone, and not in the context of COVID. Why sometimes it's just better to stay horizontal? Um, burritos and the Delowry Triangle of Doom. Yeah, and snake bites. It's uh, and snake it's, bites. It's, it's it's packed. It's really great. <laughs> All right, Tom, thank you for joining us. This is a a much needed topic right now. First though, we're gonna ask you, tell us a little bit about yourself, tell us some hobbies that you have, some some interesting stuff. 
Sure. So uh, I uh, am a 620-year-old hematologist. Uh, I have a wonderful wife and daughter. And I think in summary, I enjoy life and I'm very curious about the world around me. My hobbies, I greatly enjoy reading, uh, which is kind of contrary to what people think, because I usually run around like a lunatic. But <laughs> just just being with a good book is uh, I really enjoy. I run. I'm a very avid runner. And, you know, I enjoy photography and I really enjoy learning new and different things. So that, that's, I think, me in a nutshell. The odd fact, which is tragic this year because I uh, could not uh, do it, uh, I've actually been to over 40 Bob Dylan concerts in six countries. Oh, wow. Yes. I have no follow-up for the Bob Dylan thing. <laughs> I wish that I did. Um, I, I, I could sing, but... <laughs> let's, was that actually, so I'm, I'm actually in the middle of um, the first Law Trilogy, which is this three gigantic novel um, trilogy. So I have no time in my life for any other book. So having said that, if you could just give me a book recommendation, being an avid reader, <laughs> what can I put on my list of things that I will not get to for the next probably six months realistically? Okay. I am, I mainly, I, I, I really, I mainly read uh, history books. I would have to say that there is a biography, and of course I'm spacing on the author of Charles de Gaulle, that is an excellent book. It reads like a novel. He's actually a fascinating character, really learned a lot of history there. So I'd highly recommend that. A shorter read is was a book a couple of years ago called Command and Control about nuclear accidents, nuclear bomb accidents. Oh. Very, is literally one of those books you could read and not put down. And I think finally on the theme of the show, uh, while we were down for pandemic, my daughter read In Thin Air, which I read years ago. And that's actually another very exciting, cannot put down book. So I think th those are that. My other pandemic project is I'm a big fan of Shakespeare. So I've actually been catching up on uh, just read Richard III again and always pertinent to these times. All right. I'll add them to the list. Fantastic. Yes. Yes. I don't watch TV. So that gives me time to do this. Avi, did you, is there anything you always wanted to ask Tom? <laughs> Oh my goodness. You know, I've known Tom <laughs> I've known Tom for a long time. So I actually do I'm curious, uh, what is your favorite failure and and what did you learn from it? Oh, you know, my favorite failure was years ago when I won my first teaching award, a senior faculty member came up to me and says, Delori, every minute you spend teaching is a minute you could have been doing something to be promoted. And I have failed to take that man's advice and failed to do it to this day. Uh, so that is my favorite failure. You know, I've had a bazillion fa failures, but that's the one that sticks out the most that I'm taking to heart. I, I remember interviewing for residency and I said, well, I want a job where I see patients, do some research and teach. No, no, nobody has a job like that. So, you know, I, I, I think part of it is, I think you have to take all advice elders like me give people with a grain of salt. I like that. So you're, you, you chose to become a triple threat, the, yes. a researcher, a clinician, and an educator. That's, yes. that's fantastic. So you failed to let that person quietly sabotage your career. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That, that, <laughs> that is the key. Yes. And ironically, uh, it's turned into a great story. Was there any good advice that you did receive in your career? Yes. Well, I think the best advice I received, I was uh, at the VA one time as a resident, kind of grousing about things not working. You know, the file room lost my x-rays. And the chief of staff came up to me and says, Delori, if at the end of the day, you haven't laughed about something that happened to you, you're taking it too seriously. And, and I think that's right. I mean, a lot of things go bad and stuff. I think you got to enjoy life. And as, as my mentor said, I think for a career, you really got to end up doing something you have fun with and enjoy. And that's, I think I do. I really enjoy what I do. I enjoy 
all the aspects of it. I enjoy having a job where I can do hematology, which is wonderful, you know, help with weather medicine, which is wonderful. So I, I think just not taking it too seriously and enjoying life. For physicians, this hasn't been an easy time in an already challenging profession. If you're looking for a new position or just starting to imagine what might be out there, our sponsor, Provider Solutions and Development, helps people like you find their next job. For 20 years, they've taken a holistic approach to career coaching that starts with listening to what you are looking for in the clinic and outside of it, and then finding the role that fulfills you. With exclusive access to hundreds of open positions across the country, they're ready to guide you toward the job you really want from residency all the way to retirement. Get in touch after this show to start a conversation at psdrecruit.org forward slash curbsiders. All right. So I have case one from Cashlack Memorial for us. So Dr. Gotta Climb, a 40-year-old colleague of yours in medicine, shares that they've been invited to go to a mountain climbing slash backpacking trip to vacation safely during COVID-19. They're finally going to use some PTO hours after the last seven months. In addition to avoiding COVID-19 transmission, they say they've never overnighted in the wilderness before and want to be proactive about staying safe. And during your casual conversation, we also mentioned some concern about the altitude. They think they're going to be at about 8,000 feet at least, as they say that they've experienced headaches during a pre-COVID medicine conference at a ski resort in Colorado. So before we really get granular with this case, I wanted to help our, our listeners with some broader definitions. So can you explain to us what wilderness medicine is? Well, I think everybody has their own definition of wilderness medicine. It usually involves what they're interested in. But one definition I've heard and I like is practicing medicine in an austere environment. And I think if you look at the people in wilderness medicine, people in the Wilderness Medical Society, that's what it's all about. You know, there's obviously a lot of inches in the woods and the mountains. There's actually a contingent that thinks about uh, space. Uh, there's, uh, you know, disaster medicine sometimes rolls into it. So I, I think the very broad category would be really practicing in an austere environment. And then there's a variety of subgroups of that. I think, you know, you know, maybe classical wilderness medicine is, is altitude sickness, hypothermia, you know, uh, frostbite, uh, heat exhaustion. But, you know, there's also, you know, travel medicine, you can almost think as a subset of that. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of common overlapping things. And so it has a wide group of interest. And I think one of the things that fascinates me about it is just when we go to conferences, the breadth of things discussed and the group of people there. But so I, I think that's a definition I would I, I would like. And what how. How does one do this? Are there are there fellowships? Do you just belong to societies? Do you, can you call yourself a wilderness medicine expert if you just read a lot about it? Like, how do you actually get into being a wilderness medicine doctor? Well, you're in the woods, and the lady of the lake hands you a sword. No, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, that's how it happened to me. Uh, there's a variety of ways to get into it. Uh, there is uh, the Wilderness Medical Society, which is the big group in the United States. Uh, they have formal programs to get a fellowship. I'm, I'm a fellow of their uh, training programs to do. Uh, travel medicine has its own societies and, and interests. So I think the way people get into it is to go to a wellness medicine meeting, 
uh, see what things interest them, uh, get specific training. And so I think it's um, uh, very addicting, obviously, but I think it brings in a wide variety of groups. But I think most people I know enter it through you know, wellness medicine meeting, outdoors meetings, and then decide to get more involved in the process. Now, I know we, we've done a show on in-flight medicine, and for in-flight medicine, there's like a very specific emergency kit that's kind of the minimum that most planes have. If if you were this doctor got a climb going out into the woods, is there any such kit for wilderness medicine, or is there a place like what? What would you recommend someone bring if they're going into the woods and it's they're going to do some pretty serious hiking and maybe be staying overnight somewhere? I think I think that's that's key. And the discussions come up a lot, and we we can divide that two things. So emergency kits, you know, what a lot of people actually end up doing is buying an emergency kit off Amazon, then dumping everything out of it and put it in their own stuff. Uh, and so I think part of it's general to uh, everybody. So. You know, you should have some sort of analgesia, you know, certainly non-steroidals. If it's a major hike, you know, everybody's always had the oxycodone they kept for a rainy day uh, to take with them. Uh, you know, there should be oral rehydration, uh, things for anaphylaxis, skin issues. Uh, for high altitude, certainly having azetazolamide, even a little dexamethasone there. And obviously a variety of, you know, Band-Aids and, you know, things to make splints out of, ace wrap. So I think it, it really has to be trip specific. Certainly something somebody would take for a day hike overnight hike would be much different than, an, let's say, a, a week in the woods or a week backpacking. But I think certainly common things are being common. So pain control, infection, things for sunburn, skin control, uh, rehydration salts can come in handy. Uh, for water, there's you know these, these straws you can drink out of that purify the water, easily available on Amazon things for anaphylaxis and allergies, and then obviously trip-specific, like high-altitude uh, drugs for this trip. And then one thing which sounds obvious, but I know people run in the woods and discover this, you know, your home medications for diabetic, you know, bring your yeah. insulin. And I have a good friend, a colleague who's diabetic, who actually wears his insulin uh, on his chest to keep it from freezing. Discover the hard way that when you go up to extreme altitude, you actually need to vent it or else the bottles will oh, explode. Oh, and so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there are very specific things. And I think one one good thing, uh, again, not to harp on the wellness medical side too much, and certainly not one of our standard textbook, Auerbach, is actually very nice chapters about hiking and doing things with chronic illness. So if you're a practitioner in the office, like this guy with diabetes wants to go hiking, what should I do? There's there's excellent guidance available, and some of the guidelines hit that. So, so I think both common things and then very uh, specific things uh, can be can be in a kit. Um, I sometimes give a talk on antibiotics in the wilderness, and for most things, actually, augmentin is very good. I'm sorry, I'm you know clavulac acid, which I can barely pronounce. Uh, I'm from Indiana; I have trouble pronouncing things. Uh, Amoxclav, just Amoxclav, Amoxclav. Yeah. I've learned something now. I, I've yeah. been taught uh, Amoxclav. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to use that in the next talk. Amoxclav is actually very good if you're pen allergic. Uh, it's often you know. Uh, trimethyl sulfa, coming up with other choices can be hard. But but again, I think a very reasonable thing. And so you really should create your own kit. It, it's worth the effort. Uh, plenty of Band-Aids uh, are key. Yeah. So th for this, I guess if a patient sees you, you could prescribe them like the EpiPen and some yes. basic antibiotics and stuff and just and and give them instructions on how to take it. Can you can you elaborate on the rehydration salts a little bit? Like, where do you get those? Is that something that's like a homemade thing? Is it? Is it? No, the, it it's uh, easily available. So there's these standard packages, and I think maybe the HWO originally vented them. 
Uh, you mix them with like a pint of water or standard amount of water, but they're, you know, a salt solution that's very useful for rehydrating. It was actually originally used in diarrheal illnesses for oral oh, yeah. rehydration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can buy huge packages of these on Amazon. And actually, the travel clinic I go to, uh, since I have a propensity to get GI illnesses, like like give me a case of them. But, uh, yeah. but they're very handy. Boil some water, throw in the salt, boom, you got it done. As an aside, uh, I, w- I wish hospitals carry these because when you don't have like an IV access for patients, I feel like we should be giving these to people if they can drink. And uh, I've tried to do it before, and, lo- and it's it wasn't as easily available as it should have been. So anyway, that's an aside. Speaking of IVs, like in addition to meds or sort of basic first aid, like do you bring any like more like higher medical grade stuff or stuff in sterile packaging? Like do you bring an IV? I mean, if you're not carrying around a a liter of LR, but like do you bring do you bring a stethoscope? Um, I actually saw something online that there was some research about the value of like point of care ultrasounds. Um, which would, you know, this, this, the curbsiders are big fans of point of care ultrasound, but do you bring your handheld device no, and your, I mean, your smartphone? I have enough trouble using a stethoscope in my office. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so I, I tend not to be medically sophisticated when I travel. Uh, so I tend not to, you know, sometimes larger expeditions may carry, but you know, there's a lot of issues. You know, if you carry IV fluids, that's a lot of weight. What if it freezes? So people tend not to do that. I think there is a growing interest in point of care ultrasound, uh, again, mainly led by the emergency room contingent. Uh, as people get more facile with that, a lot of literature appearing on that. Interestingly, as far, and we'll get to bleeding later, so we'll save that discussion for later, but um, I tend not to be too medically sophisticated uh, when I travel. And unless people, I think, are going on a huge expedition where they're really going to be away, uh, uh, you know, the space could be better used for Band-Aids. Okay. And a copy of Shakespeare. So you you had <laughs> mentioned, <laughs> sure, yeah, the, 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 the heavier versions, ideally, maybe a nice gigantic anthology. Um, you had mentioned one mistake that sometimes people make is just forgetting their home medications. Are there any other common mistakes that people make or, or ways that things go south quickly? It, it, there's several things. And um, I think there's a few. One is the idea everything's going to go great. And, it, you know, it's always a common story. You're out hiking and you get lost. You know, you don't have any food. You don't have any water because you thought you're going to be gone for an hour. So I think people always say expect to stay overnight or, you know, always have extra food, uh, so extra water. And so I think that's one mistake is not being prepared for bad things. Now, you know, you can get carried away like, oh, well, if a meteor hits. But, you know, what happens, people get lost. There may be a sudden shower and I'll, you know, bring extra clothes. You know, the, a, a, you know I always have a, some rain gear shoved in the bottom of my backpack, no matter where I'm at. I, I tend to do a lot of photography and go out and hike and do photography. And there's always, you know, my camera's wrapped. Of course, if it rains, I'll probably keep the camera wrapped because I spent so much money on it. But uh I do that. So I think one thing is not being prepared. I think secondly, what we're seeing now is over-reliance on cell phones. You know, they're great. You know, I know right now where I'm at. You know, I have a cheap cell phone plan. I I snuck off to Yellowstone this year. It didn't work at Yellowstone, you know. So, you know, if you're just planning that you're only going to navigate by your cell phone and that, it may break, it may die, you may not get that. So, you know, knowing where you're going, uh, having an idea of actually how to navigate or do things, you know, written down on a piece of paper. So I I think that's been a second thing is over-reliance on technology. And it's uh, one of my pandemic projects was uh, my daughter went through, there's kind of a morbid, a fascinating book collection called Mountaineering Accidents in North America. And there's like 60 years worth of data. And her opinion was almost every one of them would start with, 
Then they decided to take a shortcut. And so, <laughs> so I think being in a hurry, you know, when you're in a hurry, things are late, you know, it's, it's human nature. I'll take a chance, you know, I'm, that may be an avalanche grits, but I think today it looks okay. And so, so people being in a hurry, but again, you know, it's, it's easy to see, you know, we've all taken shortcuts. We've all been in a hurry. We've all run yellow lights, but you know, it does every now and then catch up with you. So I, so I think those are the uh, kind of things people need to think about. It's not going to be perfect. Technology not, may not be your friend. And, you know, if you're very goal-directed, I'm going to get to the top of that mountain. I'm going to finish this hike no matter what, you know, read in thin air about that. Yeah. Or, you know, boy, I, I got, you know, I got to get back home or, you know, um, my friends will be upset with me. I'm going to take this shortcut. I, I think that's usually the universal way of how people get into trouble. Okay. So I want to briefly summarize and then we'll, I think we should go into talking about some of the specific sure. afflictions or th issues that people might get into. So we, antibiotic wise, you said amoxclav, maybe trim sulfa. I was thinking also maybe doxy for, yeah. uh, you know, doxy is very good for unusual things. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, some sort of a kit for anaphylaxis. So probably like antihistamines, yeah. EpiPen, and then hydration salts, plenty of water. Make sure you bring your home meds if you have chronic medical conditions and uh, sun protection and maps. Just don't plan that your technology is going to be with you and plan maybe things won't go uh, so well. So we, we have- Maybe extra clothing and a little bit extra food. Got it. So we have Dr. Gotta, Gotta Climb is now at altitude. And we mentioned that in the past, this person has had a headache- going to altitude. And now this, this hike is going to be over 8,000 feet. So what, what exactly is, uh, like altitude or al altitude sickness? And can you talk about like the spectrum of that? Yeah. So it's a, it's actually a very common illness. So, uh, uh, people, uh, they're susceptible people, but people, especially go to altitude fast, uh, will get a constellation of symptoms. So almost always it's a headache, uh, some people get uh, nausea, vomiting, uh, can get fatigue, lassitude. And so that's, you know, been called acute mountain sickness. It's, it's pretty common. You know, we tend to think of it as some esoteric thing. But there was a study years ago, I believe, in the annals where at a medical meeting at a ski resort, they actually just passed out, you know, a survey. Do you have these symptoms? And 40% of people had the symptoms of altitude sickness. <laughs> you know, a lot of it is, oh, I got a headache. It's jet lag. But, you know, but you go and, you know, I, I feel like even, you know, going to Yellowstone at 8,000 feet, you feel draggy for a day and there's a lot of reasons, but it's probably part of it. And then it can evolve and sort of the spectrum goes from getting worse headache and sort of the end stage, which rarely fortunately happens, is like high altitude cerebral edema where your brain swells and that's sort of it. Uh, people vary with it. You know, some people are debilitated by the nausea and vomiting, debilitated by the headache. So, so I think that's the first big illness. The second big illness is high altitude pulmonary edema, uh, a non-cardiac pulmonary edema, strong individual susceptibility. Again, as has actually been reported at ski resorts and ski altitudes. You know, maybe it's rare, one in a thousand, but you know, how many people ski? And certainly much more common uh, as you go to higher altitude. So I think those are the two general ones we tend to think about. Okay, so there's the so there's the the more like the the AMS, the acute mountain sickness, right. and the cerebral edema, high altitude cerebral edema. Those are kind of a spectrum. Right. And then then the separate illness is this high altitude pulmonary edema. 
Correct. So how how would you tell uh, how would you tell this person to ascend so that they they are at less risk of getting this and you know maybe how they climb the mountain how does that work or do they need to take medications to yeah. prevent this how do you coach people yeah so there's there's a very very nice uh, summary uh, that and actually the uh, section on this in uh, up to date is excellent. Uh, Peter Hackett and several other people were the authors where they really go by risk stratification. So, you know, a very slow climb, uh, taking your time, very low risk, literally like going up Kilimanjaro in a week, very high risk. So you can do some risk stratification. And and, and uh, one thing Dr. Hackett recommends kind of nice is, you know, just simply draw a graph of the trip. It's like going like that, you know, it, it, it's high altitude. Uh, you know, part of it is is slowness. Uh, Dr. Hackett did a nice study years ago. Uh, you know, people that went to the base camp of Everest in a day or two had an instance of altitude sickness of up to 50%. Those who hiked took a week, it was down to about 10%. So, you know, when people go above 3,000 meters, try not to go above 500 meters a day. Having a rest day every now and then is it seems to be key. So slow and steady. And most Planned hikes in the in high areas, uh, expedition hikes, have that planned in. The other thing, which you read in the mountaineering literature, you know, people always like go to base camp, they build camp one, but go back to sleep in you know base camp. They go to camp two, build camp. I'm sorry, they build camp three, go back to sleep, and you know, trying to be very you know uh, not trying to you know sleep at a new altitude every night. So so those are some of the ways you can do it. Issues with that is some things just are faster than usual. And again, we don't know why there's an individual susceptibility to mountain sickness, and some people are just going to get it. The workhorse has been azetazolamide. Uh, it seems it speeds acclimatization. You breathe a little faster. Uh, and it's really been the workhorse of altitude medicine. Uh, studies have shown a preventive dose of 125 BID uh, is very good to prevent this. You take it. Uh, and then you continue for two to three days at maximal altitude. It's a therapy for acute mountain sickness. Uh, people who, rare people, especially if it's they've had severe mountain sickness, we give, may add a little bit of dexamethasone. Again, the issue is it doesn't acclimatize people. Uh, it just makes them feel better. Uh, but really, azetazolamide for most people be the workhorse. Uh, at these low doses, the side effects tend to be low. There's even controversy can go even lower, 6.25, uh, I'm sorry, 62.5 milligrams BID. One study was positive, one was negative, but most do well to 125. So I think for people who've had bad AMS in the past or on aggressive climb, using azetazolamide is there. Side effects, you know, it makes beer, cola taste flat. It may cause a slight decrement in exercise performance, but you know, compared to barfing your brains out, it's probably a good trade-off for some people. I wonder if the dexamethasone in this case is, is mostly having like anti-emetic properties, right. and it looks like it's a reasonable, like reasonably high dose. It's four, like four to eight milligrams yes. every six hours or so, depending if you're. And is that mostly just for treatment, or do you use that for prevention in some cases as well? Rarely, mostly for treatment, but there are. Patients who, let's say, may go to Machu Picchu, have a very aggressive climb. They've really had bad altitude sickness. You know, at least give them some as preventative for a day or two, or at least have a board for treatment. Again, I, uh, as a hematologist, I actually tend not to like steroids and having people on steroids. Yeah. So, I, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, it's going to mess up the biopsy you need tackle. when they descend. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> they have ITP at altitude. It's handy too. So. 
Okay. And then, so that was for acute mountain sickness uh-huh. and uh, the, the high altitude cerebral edema. What about for HAPE or high altitude pulmonary edema? So there, again, judicious climbing uh, altitude is key. Again, what's surprising is if people have had HAPE in the past, they're more likely to get in the future. And so a preventative is using nifedipine uh, as a pulmonary vasodilator because the pathophysiology appears to be an accentuation of the hypoxic uh, vasoconstriction we see in the pulmonary arteries. Um, there was actually interest in using uh, 5-phosphodiesterase inhibitors. Uh, that faded from the scene, both due to cost. They seem to get confiscated at the border a lot. <laughs> and it may didn't surprisingly do anything for altitude sickness. So I think people are back to using uh, mainly nifedipine. And oxygen, I was I was curious to see that oxygen didn't really seem to have as big of a role in any of this as I thought it would. And I think part of the issue is it's, you know, you're not really, most people aren't carrying oxygen tanks or doing oxygen. So the way we, we recommend for oxygen are, are, are kind of cute. One is just descent. If you descend, the pressure of the air is higher, you get oxygenated. Secondly, there's these big bags called gamal bags. So like giant balloons, you stick the person in it, you zip it up. And actually, somebody pumps it up, and you literally increase the air pressure inside. <laughs> they they fall relatively like by uh, 4,000 feet. And again, that increases their oxygenation. I I also think it's a good test for mental status because as, as an experiment, somebody zipped me in one once. Oh and, and it was so claustrophobic. I you know, If I had a knife, I would have ripped ripped it and had to buy a new Gamal bag. But, but those are the tricks for oxygenation is uh, – trying to descend or like many, you know, big expeditions will carry Gamal bags because conditions may not allow you to descend. So I think we've covered, I, I think we've covered the the high altitude sickness. Is there any, are there any other key points about this? So it sounds like take your time, maybe some acetazolamide if people have had trouble before, carry some dexamethasone in case people get sick as well. And then uh, may, and nifedipine if if they have pulmonary edema issues. Yeah. And, and I think also, again, recognition and, and being slow about it. Uh, when you read about people really getting into trouble, they're like, I paid for this expedition. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to go up. I don't care if my head feels like it's blowing up and, and then their head blows up. Uh, yeah. And so, again, the, you know, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but taking your time uh, is very important. You had mentioned there's, there's individual susceptibility. Are there any medical conditions which may predispose um, people to, to altitude sickness? Not as much altitude sickness. There's, uh, interestingly, people who know who like have, you know, already have pulmonary artery hypertension or, you know, obviously have a single pulmonary artery has been that. But it's actually, there's been a lot of work and not much consensus on genetic or other risk factors, or is there a predictive score than simply a history? Younger people tend to get it more than older people. There's this whole theory that, you know, brain volume matters. Uh, but uh, surprisingly, even with clear interpersonal susceptibility, there's still some debate about the genetics. Interesting. And since we're talking about is paying off, it sounds like. It's <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Right. yes. That's, like I said, it's just, you know, hematology feels just riddled with AMS to the big brain volumes, but it's just us. <laughs> And then while we're on the subject of ski resorts, what should we be counseling our colleague in terms of the risk of exposure, both particularly hypothermia in, yeah. in this case? So hypothermia can be insidious. And what's what's interesting is that uh, 
you know, we've seen a variety of, you know, life experiences. You know, we, we see, unfortunately, patients in the wintertime, especially in Oregon for some reason, become hypothermic. But a lot of these are people not dressing for the elements or, you know, getting too cold. Uh, you know, there's the old saying, cotton kills. Uh, I'm sure you'll get an angry letter now from the cotton industry. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it gets wet, you get cold, you get it. And one thing that can be insidious a little bit about hypothermia is that some people get this very paradoxical reaction as their brain gets cold, that they strip off their clothes and uh, run around and, and kind of lose cognitive function. So some people, it's easy to slip into hypothermia. You know, and there's the classic, uh, you know, people, you know, getting lost, falling in very cold water. So it, it, it can be a common thing. That's where, you know, trying to wear layers of clothes you know, at least having your buddy recognize you're, you're, you're being cold. One interesting defense mechanism we have is actually shivering. Shivering uh, is actually increases your metabolism five times. And there's been studies where they've cooled down people, give them Demerols to stop their shivering response, and their temperature just keeps falling. Uh, so, so, you know, that's where food comes in. You know, if somebody's hypothermic and you have a cold Coke, Give them cold Coke because that's going to give them glucose so they can shiver. Uh, you know, <laughs> drink, drinking the shot of whiskey probably is not going to help. The rescuer drinks the shot of whiskey. The cold Coke goes to the uh, <laughs> hypothermic patient. But that, that, that's one little trick. So hypothermia can, can be insidious in some people. And certainly people are buried in the snow. They get trapped overnight. That, that's where we see hypo, hypothermia. Uh, one issue we also see with hypothermia is sometimes you, you find somebody like, boy, we found Bob. He's been lost while wow, he's really cold. You get Bob up and try to move him around and warm him up. Well, you know, Bob's vessels were clamped down. You get him exercising a bit. His core blood goes out, gets cooled down, and then Bob has cardiac arrest because he has something we call after drop. So actually, when somebody's hypothermic, try not to bang him around too much. You lower the V-fib threshold is also key. There's actually been reports of people rescued at sea when they're, you know, flipped up vertically, they arrest for a variety of reasons. So, so actually being calm and, and uh, collected during the rescue or resuscitation is a key. If people go to bico, B-I-C-O, rescue.com, there's this cold card thing. And, yeah. uh, and I thought that was pretty great. It's a, it's a really great infographic yes. that talks about hypothermia and, it says you're supposed to assess consciousness. Mm -hmm. Is the person moving? Are they shivering? Are they alert? So the best, if they're doing all four of those things, you know, it's, it, it could just be cold stress. And like yes. you said, those are people that you could exercise. Mm -hmm. And then as the person got sicker on that cold card, it's like, keep them horizontal. Yes. Yes. Don't move them. And I was wondering why that was. And you just explained it so yeah. nicely that yeah. you don't, yeah. don't want to Yeah. Cold card is wonderful. So that's a very nice... You know, I'm jealous. It's like a very nice, you know, one card explanation of a whole vast field of medicine. So I yeah. should make one for hematology. Just it just say iron. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh. and a big like no symbol on top of an IVC filter. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That'd be my hem uh, card. But yeah, the cold card's wonderful. But I think those are the, the gen general keys, and it, yeah. it can slip up on people. So this is not a point even worth making. But one of the things I, I enjoyed while reading up on this is the Swiss hypothermia classification yes. system. And I'm just fascinated that there is a stage five, which is death, yes. which seems unnecessary. Like it's, I think once you got to stage five, you probably don't well, need to classify it. Like, I think you probably cracked the case without yeah. hypothermia. Well, it's interesting. And, and their definition is, I, I forget, like 19.7 degrees Celsius, which happens to be the temperature of the survivor. What if somebody's 18? They'll never get to be a survivor. 
<laughs> the, the other thing that fascinates me about, you know, I think it is a true rule. You're, you're, you know, it, it's an old saw, but it's true. You're, you're not dead till you're warm and dead. And, you know, there's just amazing survival stories of, you know, kids being underwater for 60 minutes, being resuscitated. Because one protective thing about hypothermia is your brain shuts down and you dramatically reduce metabolism. So, you know, there's stories of people not being resuscitated, you know, getting CPR. Uh, I think there's the there's a record of guy getting ECMO and CPR for eight hours having full survival. So I think that is true. What is interesting is multiple articles say, you know, when when can you say somebody is cold and dead? They always mention truncal transection, which I usually never thought was a big issue before. But uh, wait, but, wait, wait. Truncal, I, I don't, what does that mean? I think it means being sawed in half. But, oh, yeah, I was like, okay, but, that's what but, I thought. But what's interesting is it's in multiple papers on the subject. I'm like, <laughs> it's not a problem I've been familiar with. Maybe it's, it's big in Europe. It's some but. weird meme that made it into. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, this, this episode is probably airing after Halloween, but we're recording a couple of weeks before Halloween. And, and suddenly I'm like, what am I going to do for Halloween <laughs> for my kids who are on quarantine still and can't go trick-or-treating yeah. and and... I, I, you can't see me right now, but my jaw is on my desk because I'm just like, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to reconcile this and, and the calendar right now. <laughs> That's right. Chuckle track. Well, I think of those, you know, magicians sawing people in half. So, uh, but, but I think that that is a thing. So if you find somebody who's cold, their pupils are fixed, uh, they don't have a pulse, they're breathing one time, you know, they're not breathing. They're, they could be, they could be resuscitated. So I think that's, that's the one lesson is truly, you know, people are very cold. It's very reasonable to try to get them as fast as possible to an ECMO or dialysis center to warm them up. And there are our survivals. European experience, you know, again, has a high survival neurologic impact uh, uh, data for people who are basically very, very cold. So I think that that's the one key is not to give up on people too early. Can you talk a little bit about if if someone has wet clothes, like how to handle clothing when someone has hypothermia? It depend, and I imagine some of that depends on what you have around, like if you have dry dry blankets or something around. But can you talk about how to handle that if you're out in a austere yeah. environment? Yeah. So I, one thing to do is with clothing is you know obviously if they're dry clothing, it's worth changing, but you know that often isn't there. You know, one trick is uh, is try to separate them from the ground. You lose a lot of heat through conduction in the ground. The ground's very cold. So again, that's where this burrito idea comes in. If somebody has wet clothing, you're kind of stuck with it. So people recommend wrapping them in a vapor wrap or a tarp and then wrapping them in sleeping bags or other things, you know, just to try to prevent further heat loss. You know, if the clothing is body is the temperature of the body and you prevent evaporation, they're not going to get any colder, but it's tried to prevent evaporative and other loss. So I Ideally, you know, but nobody, you know, has, oh, here I have, you know, my change of clothes with me. I will we'll dress them in a suit. But doing something for a vapor wrap, wrapping them up in the burrito. So the idea of the burrito is try to prevent further heat loss. And so even in wet clothes, you, you, you got to sometimes deal, deal, you know, play what you're dealt and trying to prevent further heat loss is key. And they mentioned applying heat to the core, yeah. like, and they show like the chest and the, and the axilla yeah. on that, on that diagram. Are there like certain... Uh, like warmers that people carry with them that they can do that with? Or is that just like, that's where you put dry clothing or? Yeah. So some, some people will carry, or, you know, somebody has a quick rescue kit of, you know, literally the warm packs you can put in there, the oh, warm yeah. packs okay. you can put on the necks. But, you know, the, the physics of that is difficult because if you remember, it takes a lot of heat to heat up water. And so yeah. people have experimented, even given IVs and other things. And it, it gets, it, it may help a tiny bit, but I think really the key is try to get them somewhere where they can be definitively warmed up. Okay. 
So we talked about hypothermia yeah. and, and that sort of exposure, but but tell us more about frostbite and, and like can you get frostbite if your core temperature is not dramatically low or like what's the setup? What's the illness grip for frostbite? Yeah. So frostbite is actually very, very common. Uh, I've had it frostbite. I've known a lot of people have frostbite. And you can be a pretty good core temperature because, you know, it's your extremities that get it. So, you know, there's a variety of setups, you know, you know, when you're climbing or hiking the snow, you know, your feet are going to get very cold. Uh, the ends of the feet, especially the circulation goes down. And that's a very common situation for frostbite. People can get frostnip, frostbite on their extremities, their ears, eyes, I mean, their ears, their nose uh, from decreased circulation. So surprisingly, frostbite is very, to some degree, is very common. And, you know, there's always these horror stories, but you see people on expeditions who get lost, they you know, have to stay overnight, uh, you know, outside, and they lose, you know, they get their fingers or toes frostbitten. Uh, great story about the first climb of Annapurna, but called Annapurna, uh, where actually people lost their gloves, and they still kept climbing because they wanted to be the first people, you know, they wanted to climb uh, Annapurna, and they got very severe frostbite. So frostbite, uh, especially for, for climbers and outdoors, is, is, is pretty common, and a lot of people have had a little frostbite, little nip. Um, and uh, again, the risk factors are, you know, too tight boots, uh, not enough padding, and, you know, it's insidious. Again, you're not feeling your hands and you sort of don't think about it too much. And it's like, wow, my, my hand is, is, is cold. So, so it's actually, some degree of frostbite is pretty common. Fortunately, the horrific cases are pretty rare, but it's some degree is common. So when, so frostnip, from my understanding, frostnip is, is more of like a superficial, you might right. see actual frost on the skin, yeah. what I was reading. Yeah. And then frostbite is where the actual like the tissue is of the of the extremities or the superficial tissues are actually frozen right and you can start to get like blisters and discoloration you can get like uh blood-filled blisters or bruising right can yes. you can you talk a little bit about like what it looks like yeah and well, how we might recognize thing is if you see people with very severe frostbite you know it actually it's you know quickly looks okay i mean it's sort of like well it's kind of pale, you know, and then, you know, you hit it and it's rock hard because it's frozen. And then there's an evolution. So you see clear blisters, blood-filled blisters, a lot of controversy in the field about which ones you pop, which ones you don't pop. Um, and then you can start to get frank gangrene of the toes of the area. What's a difficult thing is that often the extremity will look, look a lot worse than what the final disability will be. So, I mean, you know, the fingers may be all black to the hand. And at the end of the day, when things have fallen off, maybe you just lost your fingertips. And so it's an interesting change in the field. It used to be said, well, you get frostbite in January, you do surgery in July, you give time for things to heal. It doesn't work. You know, we're a go-go society. You know, if you're, you know, a, you know, you know, famous uh, podcast host, you know, you don't want to be not using your hand for six months. So some people are now willing to take earlier surgery, maybe more aggressive amputations to get back to work early. But there's there's a progression from, you know, mild cases with blisters to, you know, the very severe cases with really frank eschars and, uh, you know, frank dead tissue. Let's say our patient, like for some reason, lost one shoe uh, yes. or a boot when they're out there, yeah. and they have a foot that is a little bit white and it's numb and it feels hard, like we think it's frozen. Can you talk about whether or not they should try to walk on that to descend, uh, and and what like what you would do to that acutely to try to to yeah. try to treat this? So one thing 
is that, again, if, it, if it's the way to get defensive help, it's probably worth doing. If you think it's faster, you know, they can't be evacuated quickly, it's faster to descend, you descend on the frozen foot. The worst thing you can do is like build a fire, try to thaw it out, and then it refreezes. You might as well just chop it off. Right. Uh, that's the worst thing you can do. So again, sounds horrible, but that's austere medicine is, is you know, make sure it doesn't thaw until you definitively thaw it. So, you know, if that's the way, only way the person can be evacuate themselves or it's by far the quickest, getting them to definitive help is quick. So, uh, so painful as it sounds, walking on it's probably the best. And what about, let's say we, we get the person, we get, uh, got to climb down, they, yeah. we get them down and now we need to rewarm it. Um, What's what sort of thing like? What's the proper way to rewarm somebody? I have not done this before. I mean, you know, you go out and shovel snow. Your hands get cold. Yeah. You run it under some like warm water. They feel better after five, ten minutes, whatever. But what do you do, somebody with frostbite? That's literally it. You get some. Uh, the ideally, you get some warm water, about uh, you know, forty degrees, not enough to burn anybody. And you literally stick it in and thaw thaw out the uh, affected limb. It may take twenty, thirty, forty minutes. But you do it. Some people just run it under uh, warm water. If you have a whirlpool, that can be very handy. That will thaw it out. The one thing is that can be incredibly painful. If you've ever gotten cold and it rewarms, and so people may actually need narcotics for analgesia, well, having some pain is probably good because that means there's, there's viable tissue. So literally using water to warm it up, you know, there's horror stories of people like sticking their hand near a fire and then they just end up burning off their hand. <laughs> don't do that. Uh, pro tip, don't do that. Uh, but rewarming's key. People often advocate giving aspirin or Motrin slightly for pain control, reduce bad uh, cytokines and prostaglandins. And, you know, we're into this idea that a lot of it may be actually vascular thrombosis. Uh, yes, the hematology works in thrombosis. Uh, and so uh, may help with antiplatelet effect. But uh, but trying to judicious rewarming is, is key. Yeah. And in the hospital, I've seen them use uh, like warm, warm IV fluids at times. Is that something that should be commonly done? I guess if we get these people to the hospital and the hospital giving the warm fluids could supplement that as well. Could also supplement that. And then one, one other thing that's very interesting is that there are prediction rules on how bad the, the defect will be. And there's been a strong interest in Pascade in, in actually using thrombolytic therapy, catheter-directed thrombolytic therapy. Again, there's no randomized trials. It's the old, here's what happened before, now we do it, people do better. But that's become pretty aggressive. And uh, the idea is, especially in your hands, if you can save more tissue, the better. So if you've got a young guy with severe frostbite on both hands, saving a little bit of tissue could really make the difference in, in their life. And uh, some have even proposed, if you're really in an austere environment, can't get, you know, to a place to give TPA in 24 hours, you just empirically give TPA. So I, I, I don't recommend that for like back, you know, Philadelphia, but, you know, backwoods Philadelphia, but some of the people in very austere environments uh, wow. have, have done that. Again, the argument would be young guy, we want to save as much tissue, but, but that's been interesting. There's our friends, the interventional radiologists have, have been very aggressive in, in thrombolysing people within 24 hours. Wow. Wow. Okay. See, I was going to ask you earlier if you brought transexamic acid in the field, and, and now you're talking about TPA. So I feel like we're just like overshot. That's right. <laughs> I make it clear I do not carry TPA in my safety kit. So <laughs> okay. I do carry aspirin. 
All right. So let, let's let's transition on. So let's we've talked a lot about cold people. Let's mm. let's talk about heat exposure. So can we talk a little bit about um, the opposite situation where someone gets overheated and sort of what the spectrum of injury looks like and, and how how we should manage them? Yeah. So the spectrum of injury, there's, you know, there's heat syncope where you're standing out, it's hot, you're dehydrated, you keel over. Uh, heat exhaustion is pretty common. And that's where people get hot. They may get a little confused. They're dizzy. They're pretty uh, confused. The end stage is heat stroke, which is uh, really people basically, I think of it as people being unable to thermoregulate anymore. And their temperature shoots to 105, 108. And they literally cook their tissues and get uh, tissue necrosis, uh, brain damage, liver damage, kidney damage. Uh, it sets up a very intense inflammatory response. Uh, and so this is, again, where prevention is key. That's why there's a lot of rules about working out in the heat, humidity. One thing that people get prone to it is sort of like, you know, hey, I just flew from Portland, Oregon to America, Samoa. I'm going to go for a 10-mile run, and it's 90 degrees and humid. Fortunately or unfortunately, most people just get heat exhausted and keel over there, and that stops them. But if, if people actually do it again real soon, they're more prone to heat stroke. So they're both recognition because people can get very confused and like, boy, they're running, they're staggering, they're, they're, you know, they're hiking, but they're not making sense can be key. And again, rapidly cooling down people. And one thing the military has found very effective is just throwing water on people and fanning them, you know, getting evaporation and trying to get them down to about 100 degrees Fahrenheit can be done. But heat stroke can be very nasty and a, a very fatal disease. Uh, but there again, recognition and especially prevention is key. And I, I, in the pre-reading, it seems like all the papers that talk about this discuss medications that can possibly predispose yes. you. Do you mind talking us through some of the more common ones? that? Yeah, so certainly uh, tricyclics, uh, any cholinergics can and increase the risk because it blunts the, the sweating response. Uh, another one, you know, is obviously uh, amphetamines, drugs like amphetamines, and you know, uh, I'm I think was it ephedra, the, a drug that was out a few years ago, actually implicated in some heat stroke deaths. Uh, that can lead to it. Some of the antipsychotics can blunt the heating response. Older patients, because they don't have much of a heating response, can be prone. And then really, acclimatization is the key. You know, if you want to go somewhere and exercise, very gradually getting into it over two weeks uh, can do well. I mean, I, I grew up in Indiana, could, could go running in 90 degrees humid weather in the afternoon because I was acclimatized. If I did that now, I'd, I'd be dead in three blocks. <laughs> uh, I don't mean to laugh at your death. I just... Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you did. I'm very offended by it. But. Uh, so heat, at heat stroke, I, I always had trouble remembering heat stroke, heat exhaustion. Heat stroke... Yeah. The, the, I think the formal definition is like greater than 104 Fahrenheit yeah. and they have CNS symptoms. So stroke, right. CNS, that's, that's yeah, how that, I that remember it from yeah. now. And, uh, and then I like the guidelines from wilderness medicine. They said a drink to thirst approach is good yes. because you do, we, there are these stories of marathon runners, right? Drinking too much and, yeah. and having hyponatremia. But if you drink to thirst that it seems like that's a pretty safe way to, to avoid that. And that's one thing. We, we, we grew up in a society that seemed to really overemphasize drinking. You know, keep drinking water, drink more, you're going to get dehydrated and die. And almost all the bad hydration issues and deaths and marathons and stuff has actually been hyponatremia from people drinking too much water. You know, I, I run half marathons and I run them very slowly. You know, me and the snails are racing. If I were to drink at every stop, you know, my sodium would be 92 by the time yeah. I was done. And so really drinking to thirst. And there's been actually fascinating studies where they compared prescribed drinking, drinking to thirst, 
And actually for like things like half marathon, no drinking. And people who don't drink actually seem to run a little bit faster. Maybe they, they're thirsty and they want to get to the finish line. But so, so I think, uh, you know, the idea that especially in marathons, half marathons, you're going to shrivel up and die from dehydration or even impair your performance is, is, is pretty wrong and really being very judicious in drinking fluids. Awesome. Seems like judicious is just the theme in general. It is. It is. You got to be judicious. I know it's no fun to be judicious, but. Uh, it's safe, though. That's right. We're safer. That's right. All right. I think we have another part to this case. We uh, do. Avi, you want to? All right. So Dr. Gata Climb has had a fantastic time on the mountain and fortunately had, did not develop significant high altitude sickness. In fact, because they were so prepared and brought extra clothes and food, they decided to spend an extra night in the wilderness before returning home. In the middle of the night, though, they wake up to something moving around the tent, um, can't get a good look at it, and maybe feel like a scratch on their shoulder as they're unzipping the tent and chewing it away. They ne um, never get a good look at that juncture, but when they wake up in the morning, they notice two red marks on their shoulder and are worried that they've been bitten. So tell immediately, what is your concern? What's going through your head? And where, what's the burden of suspicion in this scenario? And then we're going to hopefully talk a little bit more about animal bites more yeah. broadly. Yeah. So I think one thing with this scenario would be, is this a bat bite? You know, bat bites, bats bites people. Um, and they can be very subtle. There's the bats have these very sharp little bat teeth that can really inflict uh, a small wound on people, but be fairly asymptomatic. And people who are asleep, uh, people who are impaired can get bit by bats and not even notice it. So you're like saying, well, great, I'll turn into a vampire. But the problem with bats are that a high percentage of bats actually carry rabies. Interestingly, like many infections, rabies does not harm bats. So they're effective spreaders of rabies. And, you know, I was reading the other day for obvious reasons that like up to 10% of the bats tested around in Oregon actually are rabid. And so the concerns would be, was this a rabid bat? And I think from the fact that there probably was a bat bite, the bat's long gone, you, you know, you can't <laughs> kill it and do a rabies test on it, that this person probably needs rabies prophylaxis because rabies is a terrible way to die. If you don't remember anything else, don't die of rabies. So, so Tom, for those who may not be in the loop or, or follow you on Twitter, can, can you explain why you said for obvious reasons? Yes. So because I was running about six weeks ago, actually felt something on my head. It was a bat. I <laughs> uh, actually had a bat bite on my bald head uh, and ended up getting uh, rabies immune globulin infiltrated in the wound, did some shots in my behind, and a series of rabies vaccinations, which is actually bright purple. It seems like you should get superpowers with it. So uh, this sort of focused my attention on rabies. Uh, you know, ironically, I actually have a talk on rabies, but that 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 was based on personal experience. But, um, you know, it's, it's very, bat bites are very common. I was the fourth person seen in the urgent care clinic uh, this summer uh, with bat bite. And so uh, the difficulty with bat bites is that they can be subtle, uh, the high chance of being rabid, and even if you get scratched by their little bat feet, you no know, bat lick their claws and scratch you and give you rabies. So they're kind of fascinating creatures, but unfortunately can can be very rabid. So uh, so and prophylaxis is key. So if you've never been vaccinated before, immune globulin infiltrated in the wound, and then the rest of it infiltrated in your butt. 
uh, a series of vaccinations now, thankfully down to four in each shoulder. I, I don't know. When I was a kid, I was always told if you touch something dead, you had to get 28 shots in your stomach. And I, I didn't know if that was real. <laughs> just something my mom 100%. said to keep me from playing with dead people. I, I mean, never dead. heard that. <laughs> Really? Oh, really? No, I was throwing with that all the time. Squirrels oh, specifically, like if yeah. you get them, yeah, you have to get just a bazillion rabies shots in your belly, and you may still die. So it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I grew was... up with the like. You, you got to be careful. You're going to get a, a huge, a huge long needle in yep. your yeah. stomach. I have they no right idea where it. this came from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would have to that. say, yeah, I would still have to say the shots, especially the last few ones, hurt like hell. So I would still not recommend uh, getting it. But <laughs> uh, one one common trick, and actually for all all animal bodies, again, it's common sense, uh, is washing with soap and water. There's experimental studies that will actually reduce the chance of getting rabies by 50%. Uh, I didn't want to take that chance, so I did more things, but I, I washed with soap and water. Actually, I have to be honest, I completed my run first because I was so shooken up and still spewing so many obscenities that I kind of had to run it off to, uh, <laughs> which, which may have had a, you know, a please, you know, cauterizing effect on the wound. I, you know what I thought was funny? Again, coagulation. So okay. if someone gets bit by a dog and it's a dog that you know and you can observe yeah. it and it's still alive in like 10 days, you can say that dog probably doesn't have rabies because yeah. it should have died by now. But I, I just thought it was funny that when I was reading about this, it's like yeah. if, if you can observe the bat for 10 days, I'm like, who's <laughs> observing a bat? Like who's – yeah. yeah. This really is the Halloween episode that wasn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, like I thought, you know, I was like going ah! – you know, like, oh, yes, I should have grabbed the bat, calmly put it somewhere. And yeah, no, I'm yes. just, so, just too busy screaming. Yeah, I'm but, thinking of Ace Ventura too right now. Um, yeah. We should. <laughs> so bats and what other animals do you think about uh, that, that where people would need rabies? Is it, it does the list matter? Is just any animals you get bit by? Just go go talk some, to your doctor. Some are, yeah, some are more high risk than others. So uh, raccoons are very high risk. Uh and uh, foxes in certain areas, mongooses, uh, jackals. Uh, I don't think there's any jackals. You know, you know the Oregon Probably jackal. <laughs> yeah, the Philadelphia jackal, a very, <laughs> very common issue. I'm sure you dodge them on your way to work. Uh, those are animals that are, that are most common. Uh, surprisingly, in the United States, actually more cats than dogs have rabies. So I apologize to all the cat people out there. <gasps> and that's because in the 1940s, there was a big campaign to vaccinate dogs. So actually, the reservoir in the United States, dogs are very low. Worldwide, any feral dog that bites you, you're going to get rabies. Yeah. But uh, in the U.S., um, and there's nice, I know the Oregon Health Department has it. I assume other people do. But there's actually very nice guidelines uh, by the health department sort of stratifying what to do with certain animals. And, you know, bats are basically, if it, if it bites you and you can't examine its brain, you got to get it. You know, dogs, observation. But but in general, uh, it should be a consideration, especially in any animal that's acting weird, raccoons, foxes, and carnivores especially, uh, it can be a concern. But again, there's been rare reports of rabid ho uh, horses, cows, which just sounds frightening. Uh, so there's all sorts of horror stories out there. But but it's usually the classic suspects. Let's say instead of a bat, let's say that you uh, you were you were running trail running and you you stepped on a rattlesnake. You get bit by a rattlesnake. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to throw some stats out there for the audience because this is like one of my favorite things I've read in a long time. <laughs> So there's there's about 9,000 snake bites that go to EDs. This is from the Wilderness Medicine Guidelines. 9,000 bites uh, that go to EDs for treatment, and about a third of those, so like 3,000 of those, are from venomous snakes like pit vipers, which are cottonmouths, rattlesnakes, or copperheads. Yeah. And uh, only five to seven people die from snake bites 
each year, uh, which is, I was very reassured from that as someone who is pretty scared of poisonous snakes, uh, even though I don't know that I've ever encountered one in the wild, thankfully. Um, of Philadelphia. What the my second <laughs> my second favorite stat? Well, I lived in Texas. We were we were uh, hiking in Texas, yeah, and and fortunately, um, yeah, so uh, my second favorite stat about this is that most people that are bitten by snakes are young men uh, between the ages of eighteen or thirty four, and it's usually on an extremity, usually on an upper extremity, because they were messing with the snake. And my <laughs> my answer to that is. Why are they messing with these snakes? Like, what is it? And most of the time, they're intoxicated, so that's yeah. probably the answer. No, it's 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 amazing. We actually had a guy 15 years ago actually made the national news kiss his snake, oh, kiss his rattlesnake. Yeah, that tongue swelling trick. Um, and there's <laughs> oh, and for my talk now, uh, there's a picture of a guy who took a selfie with the snake, and now he has a lot of selfies of a swollen arm. So, uh, yeah, snakes, young men, and alcohol don't mix. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. The triangle, I don't know if it's like, maybe it could be my triangle. Vercal has mine, mine could be, you know, <laughs> mine could be young men, alcohol, and snakes, the Delorey triad of doom. <laughs> so uh, tell me, I read that even if a snake is dead, that you have to be careful. And even if the snake is decapitated and you're just messing around with the decapitated Chunkle head. Tra- transaction, it comes back. <laughs> So tell us about that. Have you actually yeah. seen or heard someone getting bit by a dead snake? There are stories of that. If you just go and like kill the snake, like, damn you snake, you're dead. You know, the snake still has its reflexes for a while. So there are reports of people thinking they killed the snake or actually killing the snake. And then, you know, they, they prop open the jaw to look at it. And it bites them because <laughs> of a reflex, which really seems to add to terribleness. Or literally like, I'll chop off the snake's head and what no, have you learned? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. You know, obviously, if the snake's been dead for three weeks, you know, the ghost of the snake of, you know, snaky past isn't going to attack you. But uh, but dead or near dead snakes still can be pretty angry. So uh, there's one wonderful meme I show in my talk is, you know, people always argue about the coral snake pattern. You know, what is a red on yellow, kill a fellow. And there's a lot of things with that. So it's the old Batman and Robin thing. And, you know, uh, Robin saying black on yellow and Batman slaps him. Just don't touch the damn thing. <laughs> so I, I think that's the best things with snakes. Unless you're it's a little garter snake, just just don't touch the damn thing. I like the I like the practical advice too. Like if if you are bit or if someone's bit, like get away from the snake and then take a picture of it because <laughs> that that can yeah. help determine if you need like yeah. anti-venom because like I'm sure once a snake's bit you, it suddenly becomes like the biggest rattlesnake you've ever seen. And yeah. like but, you know, the picture, they say that that could prevent some like unneeded anti-venom or hysteria if you find out, oh, that's not even a poisonous snake yeah. that just bit you. Know, you. Try, try to get a picture is key because, you know, again, killing the snake, you'll, you'll end up getting bit more. Uh, and then, you know, you read these people, well, you know, look at the anal plates of the snake. You know, yeah, pick it over. Let me, you know, let me look at my field guide. It's anal plate, you know, just, just, just take a picture of the, the thing. And, and what's interesting is even with rattlesnakes, 25% are actually dry bites. They bite and they don't inject venom, but, you know, still got to observe the patient. But, but yeah, take it in a picture. Don't, don't, don't look at the anal plate. I think Matt and I were mildly devastated to find out that the mainstay of the movies that we grew up with in the eighties and probably early nineties in terms of sucking out the poison is not a thing you're supposed to do. Are there, what, I I was just, I was disappointed to hear that, but what, what are we supposed to do (laughs) um, other than getting a picture of the snake and possibly checking out the anal plates? (laughs) That's right. right. So uh, the key is, I'm going to sound like a broken record is 
right now it's just the only good therapy is antivenom and getting them to healthcare as fast as possible. And again, you know, if you're a bit on the leg and you can run to your car and go in, that's the thing to do. You know, the problem with this idea of sucking out the venom is, is a few things. It's the basis of many bad jokes. It's uh, you damage the tissue trying to make the cut in it. You know, the, the venom infiltrates very rapidly. Mm. And so you can't really suck it out. And, you know, you're wasting time doing it. So, you know, and some people have experimented with tourniquets, probably not ideal. Uh, there's maybe weak data that if you're bitten by an Australian snake, that wrapping a tight tourniquet to prevent blood flow. But, you know, you're just wasting time. The, the, the definitive therapy is antivenom and getting the patient somewhere where they get antivenom. If you really are into this, Wikipedia actually keeps a list of everybody in the United States that has died of snake bites. So uh, maybe when you're watching TV, you can uh, check <laughs> out uh, the list of people who have died of snake bites in the United States. One thing's amazing though, you know, maybe five people die here, but actually in countries like India and Asia, the death rates from snakes are phenomenal because A, they have more cobras and neurotoxic snakes, which are a lot more deadly. You know, these, you know, people are going to rice fields, get bit by a snake and that's it. So worldwide, it's still a big problem. And again, here it's, it's usually people running or stepping on one or drunken young men. Yeah. I, I read that uh, the snake the snake bites, the way people get sick from these, like it can cause DIC, people mm-hmm. get like multi, they can get like CNS involvement, uh, hematologic involvement, any anything else interesting to talk about, like as the after effects from a snake bite, like what do these people die from if they die? So if they die, it's usually DIC. Sometimes they get, especially like uh, the most important thing, like an IV shot of venom. Actually, people do get dysrhythmias, cardiac effects, but most time with the vipers, it's local destruction. Metalloproteases destroy the tissues. You get DIC. You get a lot of local tissue necrosis. Uh, Thrombocytopenia is interesting. It's actually the snake venom aggregating the platelets, but it's reversible. So the platelet count will go down. You give them snake venom, it goes back up. You don't give them enough, it goes back down. That's what they die of. Uh, Coral snakes, uh, cobras have neurotoxins. and It's a paralytic death. It's interesting. If you look on up to date, the coral snake uh, antivenom has expired, but up to date will give you the exact lot number you should get. I don't know if you can get from Costco, but uh, (laughs) so there's still a little magic. And I always recommend if people get bit by snake, call a poison center because they know the tricks. But but with rattlesnakes, vipers, it's usually local tissue destruction. One scary fact is that copperheads and water moccasins can reproduce asexually. So if you need something to worry about, that's uh... <laughs> nightmares. That's right. Oh, uh, so this is the last case. Avi, do you want to introduce it? I'm happy to introduce it unless we want to make Paul read the terrible pun of a name. Paul? Yeah, no, sure. I'm game. So Dr. Climb's camping partner partner, uh, D's ending, (laughs) read without comment, gets excited as they reach a trail marker that says they are two miles from the parking lot in the final stretches of their return hike. I actually like this case a lot uh, (laughs) because it takes a twist. (laughs) Unfortunately, they lose their footing and careen down the steep embankment through the brush. My favorite sentence of the case, you don't think they lose consciousness as you can hear them shouting the entire time. (laughs) Probably followed by the exclamation, oh my God, that's a lot of blood. So... This is, this is, I think, our, our transition into the first aid and hemostasis, um, your bread and butter. So, yes. so tell us, in, in addition to sort of the basic first aid stuff that you might bring along with you that we talked about earlier in the episode, 
what what kind of advanced skills should we have as as we head into the wilderness or into potentially danger, dangerous situations, and how much you handle this specific case depending on what the injury is, I guess. Sure. So, you know, uh, kind of the old tried and trues, again, are, are happen. So a lot of injuries can just be taken care of by just simple direct pressure, you know, putting, getting the dressing, putting firm pressure on the wound for 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, my surgeon friends really love it when I, they call me for a consult and I re just recommend direct pressure, but uh, <laughs> that, that can be a very useful technique. There have been interest for more devastating wounds uh, and especially, unfortunately, like civilian terrorist uh, in more aggressive form. So tourniquets have made a comeback. Uh, tourniquets were poo-pooed forever, like, oh, you'll lose a limb. It's stupid. Nobody knows how to do it. But, you know, used judiciously, the word of the day, uh, they can be very effective. So, you know, you can, you know, have a tourniquet on an arm for an hour or two uh, to cut the bleeding down. Uh, there's our tourniquets people can do with one hand or very effective. Uh, I carry one in my car, uh, run into a wreck and somebody's arm is ripped off. So I think there's, there's increasing use of uh, tourniquets. Another thing that's used more are local hemostatics like quick clot. And these are actually gauze or powders or band-aids impregnated with hemostatic substances. Uh, that sounds mysterious, but these are uh, like chitin and clays that can directly activate coagulation. So you can stick it or shove it in a wound. You get a lot of local coagulation. It forms a tight band there and shuts down the bleeding. So there are things people can do. And I think it's reasonable if you do any amount of outdoor stuff to carry some quick clot. Uh, there's been an effort to actually get more people to carry tourniquets. Uh, like I said, I keep one in my car. There's actually a Stop the Bleed campaign sponsored by the government and the trauma societies to teach civilians how to use tourniquets and these bleeding techniques. But again, just the old fashioned uh, direct pressure can, can help in a lot of cases. For the tourniquet you carry in your car, for instance, uh, can you tell us just briefly what it what it it looks like? And let's say uh, there was a car accident, uh, or let's say descending. You you get down there to our this poor uh, yeah. descending climber, and uh, the their arm is ripped off, like I don't know, just yeah. below the elbow, or and they're bleeding pretty heavily. Yeah. Where how might you apply this tourniquet? Yeah, so tourniquets should be you know a. a but the joint, and you know, a lot of it's not scientific because you're screaming, the patient's screaming, and you're scared. But it should be applied, you know, where, where there's an intact arm. And what most of these will have is a, uh, you know, is a generous strap. You know, if you make it too tight, you can, it's very painful. It can cause tissue damage. And then some sort of windlass where you can actually crank it up. And the issue is now in this case, if they're squirting arterial blood. You, when it stops, you know, you hit the arterial pressure. But one thing with a tourniquet ski is you really got to make it tight. If you just compress venous return, but don't uh, take care of arterial return, you actually make the situation worse. So there are rules and stuff. And usually if you get it pretty tight, you can't feel the pulse, the bleeding stops, That that's good enough. And these can be actually, these are little kits that actually can be fixed to the arm. Uh, Again, the military uses these. They can be done with one hand, so you can do it to yourself. Uh, and they're very useful. Uh, there's been studies of people kind of making their own tourniquets. And, you know, I guess if you had nothing and you did a belt, you know, make sure you get it pretty tight. It's going to be usually more painful. And again, the part is getting a belt or anything else tight. Sort of that windlass, the twisting motion right. appears to be key. And, you know, the thing about the commercial devices is, you know, you don't pinch the skin, it's rare to become painful. But but I think those, and like I said, a uh, variety of reliable brands recommended by the Wilderness Medical Society, you can buy pretty cheaply on Amazon. 
So if you had like a, a four inch strip of like t-shirt yeah. uh, and you put it around the arm and you just take like a stick or something and you twist it around in there, that's kind of what you're talking about. Like something. Yeah. And that would like work. We totally had something else. And people have actually done studies uh, where they've done the strip of shirt, the sticks. You know, if you get it tied, it's very effective. The problem a lot of time with these is you uh, twist the arm, you know, you may twist the skin underneath it. Yeah. But again, somebody's going to lose their arm. It's it's probably a small price to pay. Right. And those are perspective and randomized, I assume. <laughs> well, That's right. there I, are I actually think in the couple, military, actually. The military's yeah. actually done a couple of small studies to show that these are effective. And then, uh, sad for the animal, there's a lot of animal studies with these. Sure, so some yeah. of these, uh, it turns out that actually the tourniquet instant bleeding literature does have randomizations and, and real trials with it. So it seems like, Quick clot, the local hemostatics are good. Some of these commercially available uh, tourniquet devices are, are, are very good. Uh, and again, the problem with the tourniquet is you got to know how to use it. Well, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to read in the dark about how to do it. You know, that's why there's been an emphasis of teaching classes and stuff, or at least watching a YouTube on how to use it. But uh, maybe do you, is there, maybe we can link to a YouTube video yeah. that, uh, I'll that, see if I can find that, one that yeah. you approve. Uh, yes. Maybe, uh, maybe the Wilderness Medicine Society yeah. has, yeah. has some. So how long can you leave the tourniquet on? I was reading something about like, you know, at less than two hours, maybe you can try to take it off and see if the bleeding has stopped. If it has, you can keep it off. But if it's still bleeding, just just keep it on and don't worry about like what's happening. But is there is that just a rule of thumb? Like that's a rule of thumb. You know, it's going to differ in different people with other tissue damage, necrosis. Uh, but it, again, one thing to think about, obviously, you don't want to lose an arm. But, you know, if somebody bleeds to death, like, hey, their arm looks great at their funeral is, is not a uh, great thing. But most people would say loosen it in about two hours, see if it bleeds. And it, Again, obviously, as we said a million times, try try to get the yeah. infant of care as fast as possible. And I never really thought about the fact that the the you know you stop venous bleeding, but not arterial. Yeah. And, and if if they're not bleeding out, obviously, then then it can make it worse. So that was a that was a point point was taken there. Good point. Yes. Um, I for for this person that's that's fallen down and has all these injuries, we have antibiotics in our kit that you taught us to pack. I've mostly treated people who already have infections, uh, not people that have like just had wounds. Do you wait? Do you try to kind of just clean clean things the best you can, and then decide like wait until they show signs of infection before you give an antibiotic, or would you just give for a big wound? Would you just yeah. give like the amox? Yeah, most people would advocate you know big dirty wounds, just giving amox, and you know at least doing something. Uh, there's fascinating again, improvision is is big in wellness mess, and there's fascinating things where people have uh, you know rigged up water bottles uh, to squirt through syringes, and you know do pressure you know pressure to try to clean out the wounds, to breathe the wounds. So especially if it's going to be a bit delayed getting definitive care. Some attempt at wound cleaning, some attempt at antibiotics, you know, just to get a jump on things. Okay. And that actually sets up my next question. Um, you know, we've talked a bit about when do you just try to get down the mountain? When do you try to do as much as you can in the field? Like, when, how do you triage the urgency to, to stay in place for as long as possible to stabilize the patient versus like, you know, find the cell phone signal and call for aid? Yeah, I, I think if something's really serious, it's probably worth just trying to call for aid. You know, a, again, you read a lot of horror stories like, oh, we got trapped and then we went wandering around and they died. Um, so I think a lot of situations, you know, you know, staying put, seeing if you can call for aid, sending, if you got enough people, sending somebody out for help. 
you know, if it's something minor, like somebody sprained their ankle or, you know, even a busted limb, you can make a little splint out of some wood and tape and other things. It may be worth hiking out. But, you know, if there is especially somewhere like the U.S., most places you can get help. You know, the real horror stories are like the guy went, you know, uh, climbing the canyon all by himself, got his arm trapped in a rock and ended up cutting off his arm. Um, so, yeah, that that, you know, no other way to get help. So you do what you got to do. But most places, it's probably reasonable if somebody's badly hurt to wait for definitive care. I think this has been fantastic. Uh, we, unless there's any like last minute questions, I think we're probably going to have to wrap up here. And uh, this was, uh, for me, this was almost all new territory. Yeah. Very much enjoyed uh, hearing about all this stuff. So thank you very much. Oh, this has been fabulous. Um, did you want to give the audience like a couple take home points about wilderness medicine? Yeah. So number one, it's it's very interesting. And, you know, certainly there's stuff available through the Wilderness Medical Society. And there's actually just wilderness first aid courses. If you or your family members want to brush up on it, like the Red Cross does it. Uh, uh, Knowles, uh, one of the outdoor organizations, sponsors a wide variety of courses to get into it. I've, I've taken an advanced wilderness life support course, uh, which was a blast. So it's, it's very easy to do. I think, uh, again, to pitch the Wilderness Medical Society, wide variety of educational options there. One thing they're running is actually interviews with some of the masters of wilderness medicine, like Peter Hackett, you know, fireside chats with Peter Hackett, Paul Auerbach, that should be good. Our next meeting's virtual. I'm actually speaking about austere transfusions there. So, uh, yeah, that'll be fun, I think. Uh, So I I think that's that's something useful to do. Clean wounds with soap and water. It's what your mother taught you. You know, it's still a valuable thing. <laughs> and for God's sakes, if you're going to drink and be a young man, stay away from snakes. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Uh, blessed silence. Oh, I thought we could make it through. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So uh, please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us uh, get new listeners, which we appreciate uh, for our self-esteem. And because we think the show is great. Uh, you can send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Uh, a special thanks to our producer for this episode, Avi Yehudit Oglasser, and to our co-producer, uh, Deb Gorth, for help with the show notes. Our social media team is Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Water. And I've been Dr. Avital Yehudit Oglasser. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music that you are hearing, presumably playing behind us, as well as to the amazing Claire Morgan of Not Relief for Editing Our Audio. As always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.
That, yeah, if you if you take TV out of the equation, it is it is really frees up a lot of time. Yes, <laughs> I think there's there, this author Seth Godin that I like. He I, I think he famously says he doesn't watch TV, and that just frees up so much time yeah. that most other people don't have. But I'm I'm just gonna say TV, pretty worth it. Uh. <laughs> I, but who's I, I'm fascinated by this. But so who I know we'll, we'll get the episode. But like, who's just watching TV? Like, what kind of lunatic is just staring glass at? Like, is or really is no one? Are there people that are just doing that and nothing else? Because that just I can't. That doesn't even make sense to me. No, I just mean like you know, if you watch TV an hour a day, and if you instead of that you're you're reading for that hour, then you know that string that together. That's a lot of extra books and things. I feel like you can do both. <laughs> <laughs> Live your lives, people. That's what I'm saying. That's right. <laughs>